the children of the, the church come up before we pray for them and for ourselves as we dismiss them into their Sunday schools. Friends, would you pray with me? Father, we learned in John 4 that all of us are thirsty and we're searching for living water. So whether in kindergarten or whether we, our grandparents, uh, quench our thirst with the living water of Jesus, him proclaimed and taught in your word. So we pray for the children of the church as they are dismissed, that they would hear about this living water, they would drink of him freely and be satisfied because they know the love of their Savior. We also pray for us as we turn our attention to your word. We pray the same truth, asking your Holy Spirit to lead us to the well, to the fountain of living waters, Christ himself, so that we would drink and we too would be satisfied. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Uh, If you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we're reading verses 1 to 15. Now, we're in the second to last week of our series entitled Come and See, where we've been looking at uh, the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the claims of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so we've been in this series uh, nine weeks. Today is our 10th week, and we will end next week. And in this time, we've been considering different invitations uh, of Jesus. And so today's invitation is to come and to eat the bread of life. And so as we listen now to John chapter 6, would you stand with me so we can hear and receive God's word, which is food to our souls. John chapter 6 I'm reading verses 1 to 15, and then verses 32 to 35. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to eat a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We live in an age where people do unspeakable, unmentionable things. I'm talking about ordering hamburgers without the bun and instead eating it wrapped in lettuce. People these days do the most unthinkable things. They take a perfectly good hoagie roll and they tear out the inside to reduce the amount of carbs they eat. Like I said, we live in crazy times. We live in a day where if bread is not gluten-free, we don't eat it. We live in a day when people go to Outback Steakhouse or the Olive Garden, they don't take full advantage of the free bread, but they stop themselves because they don't want to get full before their meal comes out. Now, by these observations of the 21st century people alone, it's very clear that our view of bread is a lot different than the ancient audience during the time of Jesus. Their lives revolved around bread. In fact, bread was a metaphor used to understand all of life's necessities. And so when Jesus actually teaches his disciples to pray for the daily provision of all things, what does he teach them to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. And all this makes me wonder, do we understand the magnitude of what Jesus meant when he told us, I am the bread of life? More importantly, do we understand the significance of this miracle and what he was revealing about himself? You see, this is our goal today, to come to an understanding, just a little bit more of an understanding of what Jesus means when he invites us to come and to eat of this bread of life. Now, this story The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most well-known miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, you may not have known this, but this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, that says something significant about it, doesn't it? But although this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, the question we need to ask is, why? Why are they so repetitive? Or are they not repetitive? When John records his version of this gospel, for what purpose does he write this story in a way that's not not just redundant, repeating what the other gospel writers have written? What does John want us to take away with the way that he presents this story to us? Now, it seems to me that John, when he writes this, writes it a bit differently than the other three Gospels because he wants us to know some truths about Jesus. He's revealing some truth about Jesus to us. And what we see is that he's at least revealing three truths to us. And they are that Jesus is a better Elisha, that Jesus is a better Moses, and that he is a better bread. And so before we jump into the, uh, the passage and go over these three points, let me give you a few, a uh, little bit of context so we can kind of understand where we are. Look at verse 1. It, it starts off in this, in this very um, normal kind of way. After this, Jesus went away. And so the first question you need to ask is, after what? What is after this? Well, John is connecting what Jesus is going to say in John 6 with what he just said in John chapter 5. 
So what's that connection? Well, there are two things in John chapter 5 that we absolutely need to know Jesus is saying in order to understand what he's doing in John chapter 6. The first is something he says to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So that's the first thing. You don't understand the scriptures. They bear witness about me, he says. Then in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 46, Jesus says more specifically, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now here's Jesus' point. He's saying to the Jews, you've been reading your Bible incorrectly Because you've missed the obvious fact that the Bible is about me. That all of it is about me. It's a story about me. He's essentially saying something like, like you've been reading the Old Testament like somebody reads a school yearbook. Now, who is a school yearbook about? Who is the main character of a yearbook? The answer, of course, is nobody. That no one individual is the main character of a yearbook. It's about many people, a group of people. Now, of course, admittedly in our self-centeredness, most of us look through the yearbook as if it is about us, right? There's hundreds or thousands of pictures of people, but we go through each page carefully looking for a candid shot of ourselves, don't we? Look, there's my hand. That's my binder. That's the back of my head. How do you know? Well, you know, my ears look like that. Well, It's very obvious. We can all admit a yearbook is not about one particular person. It's about many. The Jews were reading the Old Testament like a yearbook. It's about many different people, different portraits. Here's Abraham. Here's Moses. Here's David. Here's Elisha. But this is where they erred because Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is not primarily a yearbook that's a little bit about everybody, but it's a feature story that centers on Jesus Christ. This is why he says the scriptures bear witness about me. This is why he's right when he claims that Moses wrote about me. Now, of course, how then do we explain why the Old Testament seems to be about so many other people? There are so many stories about David and all the kings. Well, let me explain it like this. I've been um, reading a biography on, on Steve Jobs uh, that I picked up at, uh, for, for a buck at the library. I've been making my way through it. Now, and this biography, uh, when you flip through it, they have you know, certain photos in there. Now, if you look through those photos, you'll see a lot of photos of people who aren't Steve Jobs. And so you can conclude this book is not entirely about him. It must be about all these other people because their pictures are in there too. But you'd be wrong because they're only in the biography because in some shape or form, they point to Steve Jobs. They somehow contribute to his story. They have a role that somehow connects them to his life. And so you'll open the book and you'll see photos of his father and photos of his friends and a photo of the garage where he built his first computer. But these are all included only because they point to the subject of the book, Steve Jobs. The same thing is true of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying in John 5 is all of the Old Testament, all the pictures, all the photos in it, the patriarchs, the prophets, the priests, all the people, all of the patterns, all the promises, all the prophecies, they all point to me. And what he claims is I am a better, greater version of them. 
I am the fulfillment of them. And so what, so what Jesus claims verbally in John 5, he then displays visibly in John 6. What he declares to be true in John 5, he demonstrates to be true in John 6. So he says, all the scriptures bear witness about me. And then in John 6, he's going to show you how all the scriptures bear witness about him. This is the relationship between John 5 and John 6. So how does he do that? Well, first we see that he's a better Elisha. Jesus is a better Elisha. Now, in the Old Testament, Elisha is a very famous prophet, not to be confused with Elijah. Elisha means my God uh, is my salvation. And Elisha operated in the book of 2 Kings, and he's known for a bunch of miracles, like he uh, provided and supplied an, an, a never-ending flow of oil to a widow. Uh, when somebody dropped an axe head into a, a, a puddle of water, he, he kind of right, raises it to the surface. The, one of the greatest miracles he does is he raises a dead child to life. But there is one particular miracle that Elisha does that connects him to our passage today, that connects him to Jesus. In fact, I would say that this story is written in 2 Kings in order for us to long for and anticipate the coming of Christ. So let's take a look at that. This is 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. Now let me read this for you. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now, did you notice some of the parallels between the two stories? First, notice that the loaves they eat are barley loaves. Now, here's what's really interesting. I said that this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, but only John records that the loaves are barley loaves. Why only John? Because I think John has a very specific agenda. He is connecting Jesus with Elisha. Second, we see that Elisha knows for certain, he has the confidence that the bread is going to feed many people, so he commands them to give out the bread. Now, Jesus, too, exhibits the same faith when he distributes the bread to those who are seated on the grass. Third, notice how the writer highlights the logical implausibility of what Elisha asked. So in verse 43, the servant actually objects to Elisha, how can I set this, the 20 barley loaves, before a hundred men? And John 6, Philip says the same thing to Jesus. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And then fourthly, notice that there's an abundance of bread left over. That 2 Kings 4 reports, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. And in John it's recorded, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The uh, point is this, it's no coincidence that Jesus' miracle mirrors Elisha's. It's all very intentional. However, Jesus is not presented as just another Elisha. Jesus is not recognized as just another authorized messenger like this great prophet. But Jesus is revealed as a greater and better Elisha. Why? 
because he works with less bread to provide for more people, and he still ends with a greater abundance of leftovers. Okay, so now on the one hand, you can respond, okay, that's an interesting connection. So what? That's an interesting connection. So what? And here's what this means. Jesus performs this miracle not so that you can admire him to be a great miracle worker and not so you can fancy him for his divine power. That is not why Jesus does this miracle. Sometimes when we want to impress people, we pull out all of our secret tricks and our secret talents and our secret abilities because we want to impress people. Jesus Christ does not perform this miracle so that people will stand in awe of him at his divine power, known at all. Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and probably 10 to 15,000 more women and children. He feeds them to show himself, to reveal himself as the final and true prophet of God, the one who came not on behalf of God, but the one who came as God. So the question that we have when we read this story is, are you amazed at what Jesus can do for you? Or are you amazed at Jesus for who he is? John wants you to realize that the best thing about the gospel is not that you get things from Jesus, but that you get Jesus. That he himself is the one being presented and offered. You see, when you read this story and your conclusion is, wow, Jesus really cares about the needs of the crowd. This means I can trust Jesus. He cares about my physical needs. He'll always provide for me. Yes, that's true. That's comforting. That that is who God is. That's what God does. But it's also too small. It's missing the greater truth that God is revealing about Jesus, his son, in and through this sign. It's like receiving a 10-pound bar of gold. And when you receive it, your eyes light up and you say, I've really been wanting a solid paperweight. This will do an excellent job on my desk. Well, yes, that's true. Ten pounds of gold would make a fine paperweight. But it's a greater treasure and of more value than you realize. You would be viewing it too small. This miracle reveals Jesus to be more than a provider of earthly fruit. He is the prophet come from God to provide a heavenly feast. You see, Elisha... He fed the stomachs of these hungry men. But the better Elijah feeds the souls of a starving world. Our desires are too small when we come to Jesus for the satisfaction of our stomachs, when he offers us the salvation of our souls. Is the Jesus you know better than just a supplier of the things that you want? Is the Jesus you know greater than just a genie in a bottle? I hope he is. Jesus is a better Elisha, a greater prophet who has come to give us more than just an extension of life through earthly bread, but he has come to give us eternal life as the bread of life. So first, Jesus is a better Elisha. Second, Jesus is a better Moses. He's a better Moses. Now, who is Moses? Moses was used by God to deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then he led them through the wilderness until they reached the banks of the promised land. 
Now, in the same way that all these connections are made between Elisha and Jesus, connections are also made between Moses and Jesus, that there are various links and parallels. Listen, so after Israel left Egypt and they were wandering in the desert without food or water, they grumble, they complain, God hears them, and he graciously provides for them. And this provision is described in Exodus 16. So I want to read for us this portion of Exodus Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now, do you see the parallels in this story? First, the 12 tribes of Israel are told to gather, to go and gather this bread. In John 6, Jesus commands the 12 disciples who represent the 12 tribes of Israel, go and gather the leftover bread. Second, the provision of manna is called the bread from heaven. Now, Jesus in John 32, 5.32, uh, refers to the bread of God like this. He says it's the true bread from heaven. Third, we're told that each Israelite gathered as much as he could eat. John chapter 5.11 says, He, Jesus, distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And then fourth, and this is where um, things show that Jesus is better, Exodus tells us whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But Jesus' provision is not just enough. It's overflowing so that there's a great abundance left over. This is just who Jesus is. He's just the guy who always brings too much to the party. Think about it. Jesus provides an abundance of wine for a wedding. He provides an abundance of bread for a crowd. In our lives, he provides an abundance of grace to us sinners. So Jesus is right when he says that Moses wrote about him because all of these events in the Exodus were pointing to the coming Christ. You see, now the crowd then comes to Jesus, and they want proof that Jesus is better than Moses. So they say in verse 30, they say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? But they misunderstand. The sign is not found in a performance, but the sign is found in a person. See, Jesus is saying, I'm better than Moses because I don't have to perform a sign. I am the sign. You see, Moses could only say, I am has provided the bread. But only Jesus can say, I am the bread. Jesus doesn't have to call upon God to provide bread from heaven because Jesus is God's provision, the bread of heaven that we need. You see, Moses was a provider for God's people, but Jesus is the provision they need. Now, what difference does that make to us? Let me ask you this question. Why do you come to Jesus? Why do you come to Jesus? Why do you need him in your life? Do you come to Jesus so he can tell you where you need to go? Or do you come to Jesus 
because he is where you need to be. You see, the Israelites, they went to Moses so he could provide for them. But you must go to Jesus because he is your provision. When we say, Lord, I need you every hour I need you, is that because he he gives you the air that you need to breathe or is it because he is your oxygen? Jesus is a better Moses because he doesn't just provide for you. He is your very provision. The third thing we see that is that Jesus is a better bread. Jesus says twice in verses 35 and verse 38, I am the bread of life. Now in Greek, there are two words, there are two different Greek words that we translate as the same English word, life. The first word is the word bios. It's where we get biology from. Now this word refers to the physical aspect of life, life in the body, life in this world. But the second word for life is the word zoe, which refers to spiritual and eternal life, life beyond the body, the life of the soul. So which do you think is used when Jesus calls himself the bread of life? It's the word zoe. By calling himself the bread of life, Jesus is saying, I'm going to do more than just physically sustain you. I will uniquely impart spiritual and eternal life to you, life that lasts beyond the constraints of hunger and thirst. The real question for us then is how? How is Jesus the bread of life? How can Jesus offer you and me eternal life when we come and we eat of him? Here's how, and listen because it's incredible. John 535, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, is one of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and life. You guys may have known of this. These statements, though, they're significant because by them, Jesus is actually claiming himself to be God. You see, in Exodus 3, when Moses encounters God, And he's commissioned, Moses is commissioned to lead Israel out of slavery. God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is God's revealed name. Therefore, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's doing more than using a metaphor. He's claiming divinity. He's claiming authority. He's claiming eternality. So in, G- in John chapter 8, when Jesus says to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, what do they do? They pick up stones and they're ready to kill him. This is blasphemous because they understand the claim he is making. Now, listen, when God reveals himself to Moses as I am or I am who I am, what does that mean? That is the strangest name. But God is doing something interesting. God is expressing to Moses that he is one who eternally exists. I am. I am what? No, 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 no. I am. It means God doesn't have a beginning or an end. That God doesn't exist in time because he simply is. He doesn't exist with linear constraints. He doesn't have a starting point. He doesn't have a stopping point. I am means I, will, I always was. I always am, I will always be. So listen to this. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's wedding together two seemingly opposing ideas, two different modes of existence. 
He's revealing himself as I am. He's revealing himself as eternal, divine, unchanging, always existing. I am. But then he calls himself the bread. The bread is physical. It's human. Bread can be consumed. Bread can be discarded. Bread can be ripped apart. So although it's opposing in Jesus Christ, I am eternal, forever, unchanging. The bread, human, earthly, physical, they coexist perfectly in Jesus Christ his humanity, and his divinity. So how does the great I am give you life? Well, he comes as the bread, and his body is broken, and it's torn in two, and it's ripped apart so that as the great I am dies, we can have life. Think think about how unthinkable that is. The eternal I am of this world dies in order to give us who deserve to die eternal life. He takes the death that we so deserve to give to us life that is rightfully his. And so this is why in the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes bread. What does he do? He breaks it, gives it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. It's on the cross as Jesus takes your sin that his body is broken for you. He's crushed. He's smushed in your place so that when you take of him in faith, you can be spared God's holy judgment and instead receive eternal life. And so to eat of Christ, to believe in him, feeds more than just your stomach, but it nourishes your soul. If you drink of living water, you will never thirst. If you eat of the bread of life, you will never hunger. Not because those appetites will be taken away, but because they will be finally and fully satisfied in Jesus. Now, I want to close then with three reflections for us. If this is true, then the following three are true. First, only Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies you. Only Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies you. C.S. Lewis is known for saying this. He says, you can never get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. You can never get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. Now, he's English, of course, so he talks about tea, but an American would say, you can never find a big gulp (laughs) big enough to to satisfy me. The, the, the The point is this. Anything you look to in this world to fill you will just leave you hungrier than before. Here's why. Because every earthly bread that you eat requires that you pay for it in some way or in some measure. Let me say that again. Every bread of this world that you eat requires that you pay for it. Anything that you're looking to to fill you, you must pay for in some way. If you're looking for people's opinions and people's acceptance of, to fill you, then you'll pay for it by living a life of compromise and a life of the fear of man. You'll pay for it by being enslaved to the question, what do you think of me? You'll pay for it as you seek to please everybody as your master. If you're looking for riches and worldly luxuries to fill you, you'll pay for it. You'll pay for it by idolizing work. You'll live in anxiety as your investments and your stock and your portfolio goes up and down. You'll pay for it because you'll become an ungrateful workaholic who is blinded to all the intangible gifts that God has lavished upon you because you don't realize the spiritual blessings he stored up for you in heaven. If you're looking 
for the perfect spouse and the perfect child or perfect children to fill you, then you'll pay for it by alienating yourself from your kids, by placing imperfect standards on them, your standards on them. You'll pay for it because you'll pressure them to live for you and not for God. You will pay for it. Every earthly bread that you are trying to eat and trying to get you to fill you, you have to pay for dearly. But only Jesus is the bread of life who pays for you. Only Jesus pays the price that through his sacrifice you can be satisfied. Only Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies you. Second, the bread of this world spoils your spiritual appetite. The problem with the bread of this world is not only that it won't ultimately fill you, but it will temporarily fill you. Do you understand that? It's not just that, oh, it's going to always leave me hungry. No, the problem is sometimes it works. It does fill you, and once it does, it spoils your appetite. It masks your spiritual hunger, so you don't even know the true things that you are hungering for because you've had your fill. You know, I once ate at one of those um, glorious uh, all-you-can-eat Brazilian meat restaurants. You ever been to one of those? Right? And here's the problem. As I was waiting for one of those angels to come by with the stick of meat, I didn't have the patience. And so I grabbed a couple of those harmless pieces of bread. They were light and fluffy, just a snack. Before you knew it, I had eaten eight of them. <laughs> and I got my first piece of meat, and the bread just continued to expand and expand in my stomach. And I think I ate maybe four slices of meat, and then I called it quits. I quickly lost my appetite for the better food. You see, the problem wasn't that the bread didn't fill me. The problem was it did fill me. The bread of this world prevents you from enjoying the true feast of God because it stuffs you with cheap filler. It spoils your appetite. It not only leaves you more hungry after, but it spoils your appetite for God now. And third, the bread of life is given freely. The bread of life is given freely. Can you recognize when a deal is a good deal? whether that's Black Friday shopping or some promotion or sale that's being offered. We know a good deal is good when it offers you something of high quality for a lower price, right? The best product for the lowest cost. So naturally, we need to understand that the offer of eternal life in Jesus Christ for nothing that you bring to the table, you've struck gold, Right? It's an offer given to us by God's grace. So Isaiah 55, we read this last week, but Isaiah says, Come, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You simply need to come to the one who offers himself to you. Now, a lot of preaching on John 6 emphasizes the role of who. Who have we not talked about in this story? The little boy. Remember in verse 9, it's the little boy who has the five loaves and the two fish that Jesus worked with. And it's very tempting to draw this application, to draw an application from this miracle that centers on you and not Jesus. And that tempting application is this. Look at this boy. He didn't have much. He was little. He's a little boy with little to offer, only five loaves, only two fish. But look at how great his God is. And if you just bring your little to God, God can do so much with it. And you listen to that story, and you don't focus on, God can do a lot with it. You focus on, what, I need to bring something to Jesus. But what if you don't have anything? 
What if you're empty-handed like the disciples? What if you have nothing like the other 15,000 people who are present? Well, then what? What can you bring to Jesus? And this is where you're in luck, friends, because if you read this story, you'll realize one thing. Everybody ate. Everybody ate. Not just the little boy who supplied his fish and his loaves, but everybody who was empty-handed ate. Why? Because it's not about what little you bring to Jesus. It's just about coming to him to receive what he gives freely. So there are two things that two different groups of people need to hear. Some of you need to hear this and listen to this. Don't worry about what you don't have to bring to Jesus. Don't worry about what you don't have. Don't look around and say, I have nothing to offer you. Thank good you're in the right place. Because everybody ate freely. For another group of you, listen to this. Don't worry about what you do have to bring to Jesus. Because it means nothing in the end. Leave it behind. Leave it behind. You see, all of us here, some of us who are living lives feeling impoverished, we have nothing spiritually, nothing morally, nothing according to the world. And we go, what can I bring to Jesus? And some of you have a lot, have a lot of righteousness, a lot of good deeds, a lot of, of a good church attendance, and you think, oh, what, which one should I bring to Jesus? Friends, the offer to come to Jesus is to come empty-handed. Because in fact, it's as you come empty-handed that you can receive more from him. When you're holding nine things in your hand, how much can you actually receive from God? The invitation is going out to you. Come and eat of the bread of life. Come with nothing. Come with no money. Come with no good work. Come with none of your righteousness. So that as you come, you would receive Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that your invitation to us is always an invitation that comes freely because we confess that there is nothing that we can bring to you. Lord, the only thing we can bring actually is our very confession itself. God, we need you. We don't just need you to tell us where to go. We need you because you are the provision of our souls. We need you because you are the great I am who had your body broken like bread so that we could receive forgiveness and life eternally. Help us, Lord, to need nothing else. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Father, now as we respond in song, Work out your truths by your spirit into our hearts. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, hear the dismissal from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. May we do so by his grace and his grace alone. Go in peace.